All right, so we're in the Gospel of Matthew, as most of you know. We're in chapter 24, and this morning our text is going to be verses 26 through 51. Matthew 24, verses 26 through 51. Find that in your Bible or navigate on your uh, device. You can go to transcripts at calvarychapel.com. Or no, <laughs> just why am I so stupid? Transcripts slash or dot? Transcripts dot calvaryhanford.com. And you can follow along in the transcript or you can just laugh at me. <laughs> Topic this morning, <laughs> Jesus proclaims that he will return on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The title of our message, Cloudy with a Certainty of Jesus. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we are prepared by worship for the word. Now we want to be that church that has ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church. We're not really spoken of in this text, but we're in this scene, Lord, as we'll see. And I pray that we would be excited and encouraged to see our part then and to play our part now. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Here's a family feud question for you. Name something in the sky that makes people look up. Survey says? A bird. Airplane is the answer I was looking for. That's the number one answer. Of course, here it would be a jet. Sound of freedom, right? There you go. In the near future, the answer to that question all over the planet will be the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Jesus Christ rose from the dead in a glorified physical body. Forty days later, he ascended into heaven. As his followers looked to the heavens, two men appeared and said to them, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Now, Jesus doesn't get into it here in the Gospel of Matthew, but we know for a fact from other Bible passages that when Jesus returns, he won't be alone. You and I and all the saints of the church age will be coming back with him. I want to look at Jesus' second coming and our coming back with him from the perspective of both the heavens surrounding the earth and the earth itself on that glorious day. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, when you return with Jesus at his second coming, there will be significant signs in the heavens. And number two, when you return with Jesus at his second coming, there will be sighs and shouts on the earth. Let's take a look, first of all, in verses 26 through 31 at the signs in the heavens. The church will have been resurrected and raptured to heaven before any portion of the seven-year tribulation. The revelation of Jesus Christ describes those who return at the end of those seven years with Jesus. In Revelation 19, 14, we read this. It says, the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now, the word armies is plural, meaning there's at least two. We know from other passages who populates these two armies. One army is an angelic army. In Matthew 16, 27, we read, for the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels. The other army that will return with Jesus is the army of the church saints who had been raptured previously. In Jude, we read, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000s of his saints. 
Ten thousands is a word that just means an innumerable company. The church is a huge part of the second coming. But we need to realize from the outset that the church is not spoken of by Jesus in Matthew 24. The resurrection and rapture of the church is not a subject covered in these verses. Jesus had not yet so much as hinted about the resurrection and rapture of the church. He would, the night before he was crucified, indicate to the believers that he was going to prepare a place for us and return to take us there. But the resurrection and rapture of the church would remain unknown until the apostle Paul revealed the mystery in his letters to the Thessalonians and to the Corinthians. Now, when we last saw the Jews here in chapter 24, the Antichrist had set himself up in their temple in Jerusalem. He had demanded to be worshiped. It was the exact middle of the great tribulation, three and a half years into it, three and a half years left, and Jesus had instructed the Jews in Jerusalem and Judea to run to the wilderness where they would be supernaturally protected for the remainder of the great tribulation. Matthew 24, 26, we pick up this story now, and it says, therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, don't go out, or look, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. The Jews should not fall for false reports of a secret return of Jesus. His second coming will be nothing short of spectacular And as we'll see, everyone on earth will see it and know about it. Verse 27, for as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Lightning is something everyone can see as it illuminates the dark, stormy sky. When Jesus returns, it says in the Revelation, every eye shall see him. Nothing secret about it, nothing hidden Uh, nothing allegorical or spiritual. It is a real, visible, physical, literal return of Jesus Christ in a spectacular manner. Now, there may be actual lightning, but it doesn't say there will be, only that at the second coming, the atmosphere will be ablaze with the glory of the Lord. More than one good commentator has suggested that this blaze of light is none other than what's called the Shekinah or the Shekinah glory of God. Have you heard that term before? You probably have. It doesn't appear in the Bible. The Jewish rabbis coined it in order to distinguish those Bible passages where they believed a physical light was present when the Hebrew word for glory was used. It was the visible manifestation of the presence of God among his people. We see it in the Old Testament, for example, in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that led the uh, the Jews in their exodus. It was a visible manifestation of God, the glory of God, or they said because it was God, the Shekinah. We see it uh, in Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and Elijah when he shone brighter than the sun. It was a physical representation of the glory of God. And so verse 28, wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Uh, What? Well, eagles is probably better translated vultures. When an animal dies, the vultures gather to pick its bones. Remember our context here, second coming of Jesus, great tribulation, it will end in carnage at the battle of Armageddon. Here is this same idea from the book of the Revelation. 
Revelation 19, 17, and 18. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. We understand from other passages in the Bible that when Jesus Christ returns in his second coming, the armies of the world will be gathered together in the valley of Megiddo, fighting one another or getting ready to engage in battle. When the Lord returns, they will turn their attention to him and fight against him. The fight won't last very long. It'll be like those pay-per-view fights that you think are gonna, you know, and then you go and get a piece of pizza and you get back and it's over. Uh, And so we come back as part of the army, as we've said and as we've seen, but we don't fight because we're in our, you know, white outfits. Uh, Jesus just takes care of it. But the carnage is going to be amazing. This is that slaughter so great that the blood flows up to a horse's bridle in the valley of Megiddo. And so that's what the Lord is talking about. And then verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Obviously, if the sun is darkened, the moon will not reflect light. Falling stars are probably a massive amount of shooting stars or a meteorite shower hitting the earth's atmosphere or both plus other things. The powers of the heavens refers to planets and stars. The glory of Jesus Christ in his return is physically announced by all the stellar heavens having a gigantic earthquake. It's that powerful. Verse 30, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. All the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The sign will be the glory of the Lord filling the heavens against the backdrop of the darkened sun, no moon, falling stars, stellar heavens shaking. That's what he means. It's not an additional sign. It means this is the sign. It's going to be an unmistakable kind of a thing. I mean, some of you have been in severe storms. You know, I've never been in a really severe storm um, but, and, and it's kind of frightening. This is going to be a thing where the sun is black, the sky is dark, the, the moon isn't giving its light, shooting stars, meteors hitting the earth. All of a sudden, everything is shaking like a, ph- a phenomenal earthquake, and bam, Jesus Christ is there in his glory, ablaze with glory. And the Lord says, no one's going to miss this. That's the sign. Now, how will all the tribes of the earth see this? Well, the simplest answer is that it will occur over a period of time, like a day, and as the earth rotates, everyone left alive on the earth will experience it at some point. Um, um, This is quite a procession with Jesus and the armies of the saints, an innumerable company of saints, and the angelic hosts, and uh, trumpets are blowing. I mean, this is a big deal. Verse 31, and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. They will gather together his elect from the four winds and from one end of heaven to the other. Now, in the parallel passage in the Gospel of Mark, you learn that the four winds of the heavens is referring to those elect on the earth. It's another way of saying the four corners of the globe. This trumpet gathers the saints who survived the great tribulation to a place of safety. 
Now, some people confuse the trumpet in this verse with the trumpet that sounds at the resurrection and rapture of the church. All I can say about that is there are a whole lot of trumpets blown in the Bible, and they are all for different purposes. Context must decide, and the context here is the gathering of tribulation survivors, not the gathering of the church. I've read over the years in multiple resources that there are something like eight times as many references to the second coming of Jesus as there are to his first coming. And so we can be absolutely certain beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus is coming again just as he said he would. He will be fully revealed in all his heavenly glory filling the atmosphere around the earth with blinding light and shaking the universe. And guess what? We are going to be coming with him and we are going to be glorious too at his appearing. If you haven't highlighted it yet, you should go to 2 Thessalonians 1.10 and do so immediately. Talking about our return with Jesus at his second coming, the apostle Paul excitedly said, when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe. When we return with Jesus, he will be glorified when people and angels look upon us, look upon the church. Every one of us will be in the image of the Lord. We will have a body of glory like his, and every one of us will have his moral likeness. Jesus will be admired in all who have believed in him through the great tribulation when his features are borne by everyone in that great company of his saints. And so the Lord is talking here in Matthew 24 about his coming in glory, but elsewhere the apostle Paul says, and guess what guys, when we come back with him, you're going to be glorious too and people are gonna marvel not just at the Lord, but at his work in you in making you glorious. You, you see those, some of you might even have before and after pictures. You ever, you ever done that? You know, to, to track your progress? Don't, I don't want to see them, but uh, they're, they're, it's a famous thing, you know, and, and there's a lot of people, and I'm, I, hey, I applaud people, you know, before, you know, they were 800 pounds and now they're 80 pounds. I mean, that's fantastic, you know, uh, all from, you know, whatever diet and all that, and that's great, before and after pictures. This is, that's what Paul the Apostle is saying, is this is going to be a great before and after before, we look like this. And, and you know, we had the, the gospel as a treasure in earthen vessels. Afterwards, we're gonna look glorious when we have our glorified body and our perfect nature and all of those things. And people are gonna see the connection, but they're gonna think, wow, how do you do that to a human being like me? And it's gonna be a glorious thing. Now we read something similar in Romans 8, 18, but with an assessment of our time on earth now as we await the rapture. Paul there said, I consider the sufferings of the present time not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And so Paul was always looking forward to this glory that's gonna be revealed. And he says, hey, in the meantime, as we talk about all the time, we're going to suffer uh, and, and be afflicted and those kinds of things. But there is a glory coming. Meantime, none of the sufferings of this present time can tarnish what is to come. William MacDonald in the Believer's Bible Commentary writes and he says, the greatest shame we may endure for Christ here on earth will be a mere trifle. 
Even the excruciating pain of the martyrs will seem like pinpricks when the Savior graces their brows with the crown of life. Elsewhere, Paul speaks of our present suffering as light afflictions, which are only for a moment, but he describes the glory as an exceeding and eternal weight. If we could only appreciate the glory that is to be ours, we could count the sufferings along the way as trivial. Now, I like McDonald. He's a great commentator, and, and, but I think a lot of times... Uh, and probably myself included, Bible commentators can go a little bit too far. Your afflictions may not seem light. Paul's saying all of your afflictions, they are light compared to eternity and what awaits you. Uh, and McDonald here, he says, and your sufferings are trivial. Well, they're not really trivial. And not just to you. I mean, you say, hey, they're not trivial to me. They're not trivial to the Lord either. Because I read in the Old Testament that he saves all of my tears in a bottle for me. He's aware of my sufferings. He's aware of all of my tears. Uh, Paul in Romans 8 says that the Holy Spirit even interprets my groanings when I'm suffering, when I can't even talk because I'm suffering so much. He steps in and he says, Father, here's what Gene is going through. And so God takes our suffering very seriously. He doesn't just look at us and slap us across the face and say, snap out of it. Uh, now, ultimately... We come to that conclusion ourselves. When we see the glory that's to be revealed in us, we understand that there's a future awaiting us, but our suffering is a real thing. Still, this all puts pain into perspective, understanding one day you're gonna be returning with Jesus and people alive on the earth are going to see something glorious revealed in you, and even the angels will wonder at it. He who has begun a work in you will be faithful to complete it. You and I may rub against that work. We may hinder the Lord in that work. We may not want to cooperate. I mean, the body part, that's easy. The Lord can give us a new glorified body after we die. That's not a problem. The, the hard work is in the heart where we, we, you know, struggle against him. But even there, he will be faithful to complete that work and present us faultless before his throne of grace. We can reveal some of that now as we go about being filled with the Spirit, serving God, pain or no pain, you've already been changed. If you're a Christian, we can go around bringing that kind of change to others. Now, the remaining verses of the chapter, we're gonna see shouts and sighs upon the earth. In verse 30, it said, many will mourn at the second coming. All Israel will be saved. There will be Gentiles who turn to the Lord and survive the trouble and terror of those preceding years. But the vast majority of people left alive on planet Earth will be non-believers at his return, and they will mourn when they realize that they will be lost forever. Verse 32, now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. The question here, is Israel the fig tree? Let's read the parallel verse in the Gospel of Luke. There in Luke 21, 29, it says, then he spoke to them a parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. Israel is sometimes associated with the fig tree, but here it would seem that Jesus was simply using the budding of all the trees in nature as an illustration. We might say, look at the seasons, winter, spring, summer, and fall, they inevitably follow one another. The budding of the trees is a sign of what inevitably comes next, and in the same way, the events Jesus has been describing in Matthew 24 are a sign of what inevitably will come next. 
If you are on the earth when the events of this chapter start going down, then you can be sure you are in the seven-year tribulation and it is going to run its course exactly as Jesus and the prophets predicted uninterrupted. Nothing can stop it once it has started. Assuredly, I say to you, verse 34, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Now, because some prophecy teachers in the past insisted that Israel is the fig tree, they erroneously predicted that the Lord must come back a generation after Israel budded. They say Israel budded in 1948 when it became a modern nation again. Since a biblical generation, they said, is 40 years. Well, if you do the math, Jesus should have come back before 1988. In fact, he should have come back to rapture the church before 1981, accounting for the seven-year tribulation. And there were plenty of prophecy teachers during that era who said, I'm not making any predictions that <laughs> the Lord's coming back before 88. And uh, they were just wrong. Uh, it didn't happen. But that's not really a surprise because that's not what Jesus said. He simply said that the generation that experiences the tribulation will be the ones who witness his second coming. He's going to great lengths to let you know once this starts, it's going to stop you know, after seven years. He compares it in other places to the birth pangs of a woman uh, giving birth. It starts, and then, man, it, that baby's coming. You know, there's, there's no, hey, I've had enough of this right now. Let's go get some ice cream and I'll come back and finish this up in a couple of days. I mean, no, it's, once it's on, it's on and it's going to happen. Verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. People tend to think Bible prophecy is a maybe, not a certainty. They think if we can just get it together and give peace a chance, the tribulation need not occur. International Peace Day, September 21st. The John Lennon song, Imagine, has been offered to the UN as its theme. Commenting on that, Yoko Ono said, the song explains what should be done to bring world peace. You know the lyrics. Imagine there's no heaven. That's gonna bring world peace, as far as Yoko Ono said. If we could only get it together, we could save ourselves, not Things Jesus said were going to happen, they're going to happen, just as he said they would. Once the tribulation starts, it will follow its course. Verse 36, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Jesus is the God-man. He is fully God and fully human in a way we cannot comprehend. As to his humanity, he was completely submitted to his Father in heaven, and he could honestly say he did not know the exact hour of the exact day of his second coming. But can it be calculated, you say? Isn't it exactly three and a half years after the Antichrist reveals himself? Well, it is, but consider at least these two things. I remember a line in an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. He was called upon to fight the devil and stop the end of days. The devil was supposed to be returning to rule the world. Arnold's character says, so the prince of darkness wants to conquer the earth and he has one hour to do it before midnight is that Eastern time? I laughed and laughed because I thought, yeah, you know, if you just say to somebody, the devil's gonna come back at 11 and he's got an hour to conquer the earth, 11 o'clock where? 
Because if you're in California, it's gonna be over before you realize it. And so it's not always that easy to calculate time. Even if folks who survived the Great Tribulation wanted to, it would be hard to know with exact certainty the moment of the second coming. Secondly, if you read the Revelation, you see there are unprecedented events in the stellar heavens throughout the Tribulation that might make it impossible to calculate time with any accuracy by its end. If ever there was a time when you might lose track of time, it could be when 80-pound hailstones are raining on your head, when the sky has gone black, when the magnetic poles of the earth have changed, and nothing makes any sense to you. Uh, and so you may not know what day it is. Some of us don't know today is Sunday. Do you ever think, do you ever get out of your routine and think, oh, I thought today was Friday and stuff? I mean, so give these people a break. They're just not going to know what time it is. The Lord compared his return to the flood during the days of Noah. But as the days of Noah were, verse 37, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now Noah had announced judgment upon the earth and impending doom. When the ark was finished and Noah and his family and the animals were in it, the people on the earth could anticipate that the flood would occur any day after the door was closed, but they could not know the exact day or hour. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Now, people, this is not the rapture. Think flood thoughts. When the flood came, it took away non-believers to eternal judgment. It left behind believers, righteous Noah and his family, who did what? They repopulated the decimated earth. At the second coming of Jesus Christ, non-believers will be taken away to await eternal damnation, and believers who've survived the great tribulation in their human bodies will be left behind on the earth to repopulate the kingdom of heaven Jesus will establish. This is a situation in which people will want to be left behind. Today, the church age, we warn people, don't be left behind when the rapture takes place because the tribulation's gonna start. If you're in the tribulation and Jesus returns, you're gonna wanna be left behind because everybody taken away is taken away to judgment. Verse 42, watch therefore for you, don't know what hour your Lord is coming, but know this, if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. In Bambi, there's that scene in which three quail are hidden in the thick underbrush from the evil hunters. It's when man is in the forest. One of them is overcome by fear, and even though his, her friends are saying, don't do it, don't do it, she flies away, bam, goes the shotgun, and the little bird falls dead to the ground. This is what your children are watching. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Bambi was filmed here in the valley. Uh, but anyway... Remember, this section opened with Jesus warning the Jews to not be lured out of the place of his divine protection. Wait it out. Watch for the glory of his return. Otherwise, bam, the devil is gunning for you. 
Now, one thing Jesus hasn't referred to yet is his judgment when he returns with regard to giving out rewards for faithful service to him during this tribulation. He compares the Jews primarily, but all people living during the tribulation to stewards, household managers, who are either faithful or evil. And so verse uh, 45, who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master's delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of, and he'll cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, don't get lost in the details. The single simple point Jesus made was that you should remain faithful to him despite the awful tribulation of those years and the very real likelihood of martyrdom. He will reward faithfulness with positions of authority in the kingdom of heaven on the earth. Those who are found evil, we would say unfaithful or non-believers, they will, as we've seen previously, be taken away to await eternal damnation. There will be both shouts of joy and sighs of horror from the inhabitants of the earth at the second coming of Jesus. Shouts of joy from all Israel because they will be saved and from Gentiles who have survived the tribulation, Gentile believers, but everyone else will have sighs of mourning because they will see Jesus and they will know that it's too late. And it will be too late. There are times when it is too late. You think, well, can't they, can't they repent after they see him? And the answer to that is no. It will be too late. They will be confirmed in their unbelief, taken away to judgment. If you're not a believer, what is it really that is keeping you from receiving the forgiveness of your sins and the righteousness of Christ? What or who could be so important to you that you would risk being left behind if the rapture happened now and end up being taken in judgment at the end of the tribulation should you even survive it? Jot it down as we in a moment give you time to think about it. Look at what you've written down. Is it worth it to risk eternity separated from God from whatever it is, whoever it is? whenever it is. I, I don't know. All of us would have probably different answers, but I trust people to, to be thoughtful and, and to, uh, to, you know, to be able to, to step back and put in pursuit. I, you know, I, don't, I don't believe in Jesus Christ because, and this is it, I, I don't think I'm a sinner. Uh, I haven't lived my life yet. I'll have a chance at the end. You know, I love this person who's not a Christian. Whatever it might be, look at it, and then as we're having our reflection time, just think, is this worth rolling the dice and missing out on eternal life or can't I trust God as a heavenly father to give me something greater? Believer, you will reveal the glory of Jesus Christ at his coming. People and angels will marvel at the work Jesus Christ has completed in you. As I indicated before, it will be the greatest before and after comparison of all time. As we go into our reflection time, take time to just revel in his love for you. Let's pray.